This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Academic Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and I'm joined today by Chelsea T. Hicks, author of A Calm and Normal Heart. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you, Dr. Gessler. It's great to be here. I am so glad that you're here, and I'm just thankful you're going to share your book with us. Before we get started, will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I like to introduce myself in Wajaje Ia, which means Osage talk or the Osage language, and it's an ancestral language from my eco, Betty Hicks, and I would say Hawaii. Wajaje, Jaje Khuedoi, Wahagali, Aubrey, Wah Sija Washtake, Aubrey, Baleze Minkshe, Datsile Awadli, which means my name is Chelsea. I belong to the Gentle Peacemaker Clan, Pawhuska District. I'm Osage and I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I am a writer. One of the things I like to ask guests, particularly because it's the Academic Life podcast, is could you tell us a bit about your own academic journey? Yeah, so I grew up mainly in Virginia, a little bit in Bartlesville, and that was just in summer stays. So my education was um, in Virginia, and I went to undergrad at the University of Virginia. And I didn't really know what I wanted to study super clearly, and I wanted to try different things, but I had always loved reading, so I decided to take um, a creative writing class, and I was very nervous about it. But I ended up taking 15 creative writing workshops while I was at the University of Virginia, and They have a very strong uh, MFA program there. And so as an undergrad, I kind of got to benefit from taking classes with those faculty. And I went on to do an MA a couple of years later at the University of California, Davis. 
And they now have an MFA, but at the time I was there, uh, that MA was a creative slash critical degree in English. And they were kind of working towards becoming an MFA, but it wasn't that time yet. So there was kind of a focus on, you know, art and art practice and, and writing as art, as well as, you know, criticality and uh, criticism. And I was influenced a lot by Lucy Corin there, who is kind of an experimental, I call her like a McSweeney's writer, meaning <laughs> the work is um, focused on form and it's super literary. But for me, I don't know, it just, she was really inventive and uh, her mentorship impacted me a lot, um, as well as uh, from Pam Houston, who just drilled into me like, Chelsea, you need to get your narrative drive together, which I have never known what that word means until I kind of came up with a definition for myself is we're trying to like addict readers to basically keep turning the page. And the way that I do it is trying to provide like little small rewards of like raising some curiosity and answering it quickly, as well as building huge curiosities. And that was what I did my uh, thesis on, like the critical part of my thesis at IAIA, the Institute of American Indian Arts, where I did an MFA and completed that in 2020. So you completed it? During the pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> I was um, living in different places, which is also not a great thing to be doing the pandemic, but it was kind of a weird time in my life. And so I was in California Then I, when I started that degree, and then I moved to Pawhuska, uh, Oklahoma in the Osage Reservation to work at our immersion school. And then the thesis was getting to be too much for me. So I went to stay uh, with friends in California again, and the pandemic started right as I was arriving, like within a week. And so my plan to kind of go back to Oklahoma didn't work out. And I just stayed um, till I finished that degree. And until basically the pandemic was starting to barely lift in 2021, I came back here to Tulsa to do a Tulsa Artist Fellowship. And somewhere in this journey, you decided to write and publish a book. Yeah, it was crazy because I had been working on this novel for, um, I think at the time now, I started that novel in 2015. And so it's been quite a while. <laughs> um, but now, or when I was graduating or getting ready to graduate, I had been working on this novel, my thesis at at UC Davis, as well as my thesis for the Institute of American Indian Arts. But I just decided I don't want to work on this anymore. I It's not that I don't care about it. I just, I need to shift my focus and there's something else I want to say. And so I just, um, I had a new advisor, Dr. Brandon Hobson, who's um, such a wonderful fiction writer. And he was my mentor for my thesis semester. And so I didn't tell him because he was new to IAIA as faculty. I didn't tell him what I had really been working on. I just told him, oh, my thesis is like a collection of short stories. And yeah, 
like <laughs> it was a big deal that I was changing it, you know, like I'd been working on this novel, but I just switched it up and I didn't ask permission. I just did it. And they let me graduate with that as a thesis. And I didn't really think it would like anything would happen with it, but I sent it to my agent cause I'd had an agent for that novel um, that I was mentioning. And so I just sent the thesis to my agent kind of like, okay, well, here's like a thesis if you, I don't know, like just showing you it, showing this to you. And she was like, oh, do you want to try to publish this? And I was like, what? You think it could be a book? Like you think it's good enough? And I remember having this meeting with her, uh, like assistant, as well as the agent, all three of us. And when the assistant was asked, like, what do you think? Because, you know, they're kind of mentoring to maybe become an agent themselves. She was like, well, it's very free. (laughs) And I felt like, you know, I had disrupted some of these um, ultra buttoned up literary ideas and, you know, following all these rules that I had been that had been drilled into me from undergrad through my second master's and in a calm and normal heart I was I just kind of threw away all these in these internalized ideas of these literary rules and I thought you know I'm just gonna say whatever it is I want to say and I'm gonna say it as directly as possible and I'm gonna stop trying to write in this so-called like literary establishment voice that I had kind of concocted for myself how did it feel when you reached the point of shaking off the rules and choosing your own voice? Well, I think it's kind of like, I've heard it said before that, you know, women have, there's these taboo emotions for women that, uh, for women to like express a lot of anger or to be really assertive or to um, be extremely ambitious, that women are kind of punished for these uh, tacitly, or explicitly at times have like a negative repercussion for those behaviors. I think I kind of felt like, well, I don't care. I just, I was very angry and I kind of let it all out in my writing. And so it was liberatory, but it also felt like throwing caution to the wind and like, well, I might kind of ruin myself, so to speak. Like in my mind, I was ruining my literary chances, you know? (laughs) So it was kind of a, um, just a no fucks given moment if I can use my French. You can use any, <laughs> anything that you need to. You were weighing out a, a fairly big risk then. Yeah, it felt that way. It really did. Um, and I was also writing about things that were tensions for me as an Osage citizen and a person who's coming from basically like ancestrally, we had these mixed blood bands and mixed blood Osages were kind of like a little bit different and lived and functioned a little bit different than what you would call like the more traditional Osages. And so I was trying to, um, I guess like give the most respect to my ancestors who had been translators like Cyprian Tarian and Ogis Captain, like they had had council roles and they had been translators and worked with our language and had trading posts and been traders. And so I'm coming from like these marriages between French fur traders who were marrying um, like the third daughter of 
Chief Pawhuska. And it kind of like created this little bit of a separation or a difference in the tribe, starting with those marriages. And so like there are differences between people who are more traditional and then people who like sort of don't know the culture. And I wanted to write about those conflicts in the book. And like some of that also wasn't related necessarily to being from mixed blood band or not, but it was about uh, the Northern California and Southern California Osages who were Osages who in the 1920s, as well as the 1930s and the 1950s with um, the reign of terror being in the 1920s, the 1930s, like having the, um, you know, people moving west to pick fruit and there being a depression. Um, And then the 1950s, the American Indian Relocation Act, uh, that Osages just kept accumulating in California and would gather and have these groups. And so it kind of came to be known as like, this is a thing of California Osages. And there's a little bit, there's these tensions between uh, California Osages and not just Oklahoma Osages, but Osage County Osages. And it has to do in part with like resources. So for instance, like the life expectancy for living in Osage County is lower um, than for living in Oklahoma versus California. And also there are resources that go to everyone who's a citizen in the tribe that don't necessarily, you know, like healthcare or uh, education scholarships. And those uh, resources don't necessarily acknowledge the work that people are doing as cultural bearers to carry on like sort of these year round community cultural participation of cooking or funerals or ceremonies or language learning. And I think that our tribe has been trying to create more, I mean, me, my opinion, like I, I should say, I want to create you know, and promote more cultural learning and unity and just, I don't know, addressing some of the struggles that we face as a people uh, through my work. So therefore, I did want to write about these things that you usually see, like, argued about on Facebook or as gossip. And so my work touching those kind of sensitive areas was a big deal. And I felt like I could kind of potentially... um, definitely um raise some eyebrows if not like get ostracized and you know the response to my work has been that I think people have appreciated me trying to do my best and write what's in my heart and like there has been some gossip and some kind of like oh you know like sometimes I joke that I think Osages, we like it better when white people write about us than when we have our own authors. <laughs> um, but that's not like fully true. It's just, I think, you know, like any people group you want to be known about, you want to be seen in a good light and respected. And so with my work, I've wanted to be as honest and to process tricky things as possible. And sometimes that doesn't always come off as like the PR, you know, Um, and like, is it famous enough? But I've had some people tell me like, we're so glad that you won the National 
book award or the five under 35 award, because that just reflects back, you know, that our community and our language is strong. And that's what makes me strong as an author. And that is just so true that, you know, even though I can't like write to represent the tribe and I can't expect everybody to understand my work, I really want to give my all to listen to criticism and in a healthy way, learn and make adjustments that are appropriate for me to make, not like censoring myself or throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but just, you know, like learning through this process. And it's been uh, like wild. You talked a little bit about reception of the book amongst people who matter the most. It's wonderful to win awards and have positive reception from strangers, but the ostracism or things that you feared, people understood instead that this was coming from your heart. Can you give us a synopsis of the book for listeners who haven't found it yet? Yes. So I summarize it that these are short stories of different Native women. And when I say different, I mean diverse, racially diverse as much as I could, although I think that there needs to be like more representation, especially for Black Native people. And I have that like touched on in the book, but I didn't do as much of that as I didn't feel it was really my place uh, to write that like into it wholly because I kind of come from this school of um, write your own experiences as best as you can. And I don't have like almost any Black ancestry. I have very small amount on my mom's side pretty far back. So it's not like representative for me. But um, these are diverse Native women who when I say diverse, like they live in different places, they live on and off of reservations, they are traditional or not traditional. They are one common trend is kind of looking for safety, looking for home, looking for freedom, looking for their culture, trying to have that uh, strength as a native person where you are connected to your culture and your language, but that can look different for different people depending on what their own family has culturally and that impacts their health. Um, And so I just wanted to show native women may not be like what we think they look like from a dominant cultural perspective. And on top of that, um, Like if the book There, There by Tommy Orange kind of showed, oh, like Native people exist in cities and in urban spaces. I wanted to show like, yes, in Native spaces, I mean, in urban spaces, on reservations and everywhere in between and on the road and all different types of situations. And yeah, just wanting to broaden that um, concept. But I think like it also focuses on love stories and kind of that process of setting boundaries or healing. And you hear so much about like toxic relationships these days through like the social media culture. And so I think I was looking at that, like, how do you heal within or outside of a relationship? And what does that look like? So I guess you could kind of say like, 
modern Native women in love and on the run. You spoke about how this is a, a book of your heart. The book is called A Calm and Normal Heart. And in the opening, you take us into that. Can you share the opening and what inspired the title? Yes, I'd love to. Um, and what was that last thing you said? What inspired the... The book's title. Oh, yeah. So on the cover of the book, uh, there's the Wajajaya orthography created by Dr. Mogri Lookout. And an orthography is kind of like an alphabet. And it's a writing system. And it doesn't look like English. It doesn't use Latin characters. And it says, non se waspe which means a calm and normal heart. And uh, Dr. Lookout had taught us like a group of Osages in one of his classes that phrase. And I just really liked it. And so that is the title of the book, uh, Non Se Waspe. And at one point it was called The Spiders, but my editor, Chris Heiser, thought that was a little like maybe too creepy and would draw like the horror crowd when it's not really a horror book. But the reason it was called the spiders was because um, like in Wajajaya stories, like the spider, there's a story of the spider as a person who are like a being who can make their house wherever they go. And so I think that's what a lot of the women in the book are doing. They're trying to make their house wherever they go um, and just be strong. So I will read just a little bit from the beginning of the book. A calm and normal heart. Non se waspe. Non se waspe wita hawenki shche. Da tan oju hlunk a di gahape. Se hompe ochtaska galon. Se hompe eko minkshe. Hoenki shki bret si wita bachena. Ilape ena kakon data zani dota hudapa. Kakonta walushonta. Aji nonse waspe. Hoenki etsit kan atsi here. My functional heart. Where are you? What turned you into an empty glass? Is it that I love the spiders and am like one? Wherever I go, making my house, I have only to wait, and all things come to me, and therein break their necks. But a calm and normal heart, where does that come from? Um, and I'll read the author's note as well. Wajaje people are currently revitalizing our language, which is called Wajaje Ia. Due to limited recognition of indigenous characters in fonts, I use Latinized spellings rather than the Wajaje Ia orthography created by Dr. Herman Mogri Lookout. This orthography, depicted on the cover of the book, as well as in chapter titles, is the written language of Wajaje Ia, which translates literally as Osage talk. As Wajaje elder Myron Red Eagle once told me, spellings in our language may vary from person to person. I have reflected that quality of the living language in my usages within these stories. I hope my inclusion of the language will support Wajaje Ia and the practice of including indigenous languages broadly in literature. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. The first short story, the main character, she rolls into town. She hasn't been there in a while. She's off a breakup. She's <laughs> come in. She doesn't really want to go to her relative's house, so she does a detour at the laundromat and she realizes that people are going to start gathering on this museum a lot to watch a movie. And the movie is a polarizing thing. I get the sense. Mm -hmm. Was a particular movie, the inspiration for this? Yeah. I, so I was thinking of the killers of the flower moon film by Martin Scorsese based on the book killers of the flower moon by David Gran. And I wanted to try to capture how uh, the process of that film's development had been based on responses I heard within the community. And I heard responses of skepticism, as well as uh, like respect for the way that Martin Scorsese had asked permission to and and ask for advice and feedback and a lot of guidance uh, from particularly gray horse people with the story centering around gray horse, which is a district of our tribe. Um, and so I'm from Paul Huska district, but that's gray horse district. And so that film, you know, he also Scorsese auditioned Osages and there are quite a few Osage people in the film, along with Osage language. And so it's been uh, a challenge to me of this perspective I'd heard so much at IAIA and in the Native community, this kind of um, priority on Native, Native uh, voices for Native stories and Native told stories. And the the question that it has brought to me is, okay, but when you have somebody who has this really big reach and audience and reputation that they can tell this story in such a way that it becomes very visible and more known, you know, how does that uh, benefit and challenge and change the way the story is felt and processed in the community and particularly the way that we as a people are known about because you know policy in the United States has been around making sure native people's true history is not known especially not pedagogically not widely not as a basic point of common awareness. So a huge film like this kind of coming through this uh, white ambassador <laughs> just brings a different positionality toward the um, the public than a Native author. And it's kind of sad because you don't have like a Native Martin Scorsese to do it, and that would probably be preferred. But there's this kind of like gratefulness that I've seen from the community that he did tell the story and go to such great pains to try to correct it, correct it, correct it, check, check, check. And, you know, labor went into that, like a lot of labor, probably more than was 
fully paid for, people trying to take care of representing their family members who are in the film well. But overall, it's been this labor of love to, I think, have this story known and to have our our people and the Osages who were murdered in the Reign of Terror and the way that oil wealth impacted and changed our tribe uh, become a little bit more known. And in the book, you know, I just wanted to try to represent that not everybody felt one way about this movie. Some were critical of it. Some didn't like it. Some didn't want an outsider telling our story. And some kind of did. Um, when done the way that, you know, I've characterized. Each chapter is a standalone story. And we could spend the whole podcast on a single story because there's so much to unpack in the layered meanings, in the symbolic things that you leave us with. And in that chapter, the courthouse is incredibly important and looming large but mm-hmm. <laughs> not important for reasons listeners might assume, but for terrible legacy reasons, the museum grounds are where everybody's setting up their chairs to watch the movie. The museum is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, our main character who's been telling us this story, she auditioned for the movie, but was not accepted. The person that she ultimately chooses to spend her evening with apparently is in the movie, but doesn't want to see it. And that leaves us not knowing as readers what the movie is about. And yet it's still weighing heavy as a piece of how all of this story came to be and why it's so important. The not seeing it is as important as if you had told us what you just told us now mm-hmm. <laughs> in the pages of the book, the needing to be there and yet not being willing to even, we don't even see her go inside the relative's house. We see her in the laundromat. The things that you share with us are each one, they all have such significance and weight that any one chapter is an entire story for us. Thank you. For for that one, I was curious why you opened the book with it because each one is its own story was, was figuring out the order of where you wanted each chapter to go. Was that difficult? Yes, it was. And I had help from my editor in that because I had arranged the book almost like a uh, road trip, which seems a little bit um, like cheeky or something. And I do, I have this sense of humor that is, I think playing with, um, contradictions and absurdities. And so, you know, like the same way that I said, oh, well, I spent, you know, 12 years trying to become the most literary woman I could be. And then I wanted to say, well, what's that? I mean, who cares? And I'm going to write like Elena Ferrante and I'm going to use a lot of adverbs and emotional language and reductive short sentences. And like, how can I resist the patriarchy through like this new definition of literary? The same way I did that, I think like, with the book order, you know, I kind of wanted to put it like, oh, so we're driving from San Francisco to Los Angeles, gonna stop in Santa Fe, then we're gonna go to Tulsa, and then we're gonna go over to Hampton Roads. And I kind of wanted to just do this mapping, um, which I've seen other Native people interested in that too, like this idea of mapping uh, with poet 
laureate Joy Harjo having maps of, of poets and, and, and more, but, you know, like the way that we ultimately arranged the order was my editor said, you know, we want to make sure that these characters don't seem too similar and that the, the stories don't repeat at all. So we want to create like a diversity of characters. And I was like, okay, that's fine with me. Um, but starting with that story, I liked that it was shorter, which kind of goes to the Pam Houston narrative drive thing. But for me, like conceptually, that at the end of the day, I'm okay with it opening the book, and I want it to open the book, is I think it's how people encounter us as Native people. Like putting a film and writing about a film at the beginning, that's the way that people usually encounter or think about Native people, is through films and through media and through at times, you know, usually I'll say stereotypes and misrepresentations and not through our own voices. So in trying to have my goal of widening this concept of what's a recognizable real native woman that exists, that we know is alive, that isn't in the past tense or a re- or a highly reduced anachronistic essentialist traditionalist like approximation of indianness as Gerald Meisner would put it how do we make sure that this representation is very true very real not curated but just smacks you up front as like oh yeah right natives <laughs> and so i wanted to start with that oh there's we got natives in a movie and this is what the natives are actually doing in real life. There is one set of characters who show up in two different chapters. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Florence from A Fresh Start, you see her again in the 10th chapter, Full Tilt. Mm-hmm. And in their stories, we, we see in a, in a microcosm so many of the themes that you have highlighted for us here, particularly... Um, the looking for safety, home, freedom, and culture, the concern about boundaries and love and healing, but also the how the diaspora can have a disparate effect even within one family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Can you take us inside Florence's family? Inside Florence's, could you repeat that? Inside Florence's family. Oh, yeah. So assimilation is driving, I think, erasure that I'm talking about, as well as these cultural differences. Like I I started characterizing it that as soon as these French fur traders married into the tribe, you had a a little bit more of a separation. And I'm kind of referencing that idea um, from Ruby Hanson Murray, who had written an essay, uh, and she's a Osage writer. And I, I thought that was insightful that you know, as soon as you have some non-Osage influence, uh, like you start looking at assimilation. And so within families today, I think I still see it that sometimes, not, not always, definitely not with everybody, but to a degree at times, I see one person like really showing up and participating maybe a little bit 
more than others and kind of carrying that weight and other people wanting to assimilate more. Or maybe it's not between two sisters or between a nuclear family, but maybe it's a cousin. And those cousins, oh, they stay in Tulsa. They never come out here, whatever it may be, you know? And so I wanted to show like the pressure of capitalism and I think just the dominant culture to that you, you know, benefit from just don't try to have walk in two worlds as, you know, the saying goes and try to carry your native culture as well as succeed in the dominant culture world. Just go do your capitalist deal and you will be rewarded for that. And in the 50s, in Florence's world, it's so taboo to be native. It's It's just so like it's going to cause that's part of um the novel that I'm working on right now the one that I've returned to and full tilt and a fresh start are both from that novel it's called eco meaning grandmother and I don't repeat those stories within the novel they're just separate written as short stories just for this collection but it's from that world of Florence's world and her family and her mother was orphaned by the Osage Uh, Her mother was killed and she was orphaned. Florence was orphaned by the Osage oil murders. And so she didn't even have her mother uh, to raise her, much less uh, her grandmother, her eco, being in so much grief from the loss of a child that she actually stopped like speaking for the most part. And so Florence doesn't know her language and it's the 1950s and she is living in Bartlesville because she was like basically excommunicated, like slash kind of distanced from the family for having this uh, child out of wedlock. And her family didn't really want to push her away like that for real. They weren't really trying to kick her out. They were just trying to show her a little tough love of, oh, you had this, you got pregnant while you're at boarding school. We're going to have you go encourage you to live with your other relatives or go away for a while because there need to be consequences for uh, those actions. And it's kind of this Christian perspective, although there's also these Osage concepts of uh, Mijin being this type of marriage that's the most respectable when it's an arranged marriage. And so these concepts of like uh, prudent behavior and and like basically – you know, modesty and, and virtue, virtue being the English word, but it's like this crossover of, you know, no promiscuity. <laughs> and so she is, does have a child um, and you don't find out until later, and I won't spoil it for readers of how and what happened, but she's kind of distanced from her family because she doesn't take it the way they wanted her to. We're like, oh, okay, I did something wrong. I'm going to have to kind of pay for it and repent because they're very Catholic because they went to boarding school themselves. But she moves to Bartlesville, which is a res border town, and she kind of just goes into her own trying to survive, trying to pass um, as a white woman. And she gets married. She has a series of marriages, and she's married her uh, boss in in a fresh start ruined. And (laughs) so... Yeah, it's just these pressures of assimilation and how people within one of her daughters, Laura, you know, does want to kind of be native in the same way that Florence is in this kind of, okay, like, I'm still Osage and I'm proud of it and I'll have as much connection as I can, but I also need to 
pay my bills and survive and I'm going to live here in Bartlesville because there's too much conflict and dysfunction in my family to stay on the res. Whereas her other daughter, Vera, is like mortified that they would be trying to identify as native when they don't have kind of like that higher status within the tribe that they're a traditional family still. Because even though their eco had been a cook and their eco had spoken Osage, with that daughter's murder and Florence's orphaning, that's gone. And she didn't learn that. And so she doesn't even have that really inclusion within the tribe. So how could, from Vera's perspective, how could her sister Laura and how could Florence, their mother, try to go still identifying as Osage and still have that pride in who they are when they it's lost and they have no respect for that? And on top of that, they're not native enough. And she just has internalized these ideas of the white world of, well, we're not a full blood, so we're not Osage. And you're ridiculous. You don't even know your culture. And on top of that, the racism of how could you want to be Indian? That's like disgusting. And so these ideas didn't come from her mother. They came from the racist capitalist culture. And how quickly we can internalize that due to our immersion uh, in the dominant culture and the way that, yeah, within families, cultural, keeping your, your tribe and keeping your pride and having respect for your own family is not the easiest or most likely path all the time. One of the notes I made when I was reading that chapter was how you show us throughout the book, but particularly with this family, how they're living different experiences inside the same family, even inside the same room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And often inside the same conversation, yeah. Florence will use words that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Florence says boarding school, what at least one of the daughters you show us thinks that means has nothing to do with what it actually was. Right. Yeah. So Vera wants to kind of put this narrative toward her sister, Laura, to force her sister, Laura, to stop identifying like, well, she was privileged. She was wealthy. They had oil money. So she went off to this fancy boarding school and she lived a life of wealth. And who knows what this poor Indian thing is. And that's her urge to fit in as a white Oklahoman and pass and and disassociate herself from her origins because she's ashamed of she is ashamed of them. And so she it's so funny that she cannot accept the reality of the boarding school where her mother went to. And she just kind of puts this narrative together to conflate the oil wealth with they had with the opportunity to go to a white privileged boarding school, which she did not. And it's, it's a dark humor. Like it's, it's hilarious to me, even as it's like horrifying, because I think within families, you always see people arguing about how they interpret the family and disagreeing on things. And, and, you know, like people's family is their authenticity and it's their identity. It's your cultural identity as a white person, as a black person, as a person, your family represents who you are. And so when families don't agree about that, it these arguments can come up that are, they're sort of horrible, but they're also kind of hilarious, I think. And we see that family again, uh, a different uh, perspective on them. In, in the chapter of Full Tilt. Yes, in Full Tilt, that's Laura kind of a little bit more adult 
Um, she has a child of her own and she is finding out how difficult it is to be a woman, um, you know, who has just a strong sense of self and a strong mind and strong boundaries amidst, uh, you know, this rampant phenomenon of the, the ultra dominant male. And so she's going back home from a relationship that she's fleeing. And when she comes back home, she finds the same arguments uh, about home and what it means alive and well. And I I like that story a lot um, because it fits my aesthetic of a story that is, I don't know, like fun to read and focuses purely on what's happening to the people. Like she's painting her nails, she's baking cake, she's moving out, she's driving, she's having a greasy hamburger. And it's just focused on um, like a fun to read situation. It's it's like the youth say, the vibe. It's a good vibe. <laughs> and then she, um, when she finally gets home, you know, all the kind of arguments and political things are waiting for her and she has to engage and she's a little she's a little bit stronger and has new perspectives and can engage uh in a different way than she did in the earlier story when she was you know just finishing her teenage years often things don't make it into the book yeah were there any chapters you were hoping to have that just didn't fit? Yeah, there was a, a short story called The Oklahoma Ocean that I just loved. And it was about um, this college student who goes to a wedding with a friend of hers and they get caught in a storm and they aren't – the wedding – they aren't able or they find out when they get to the wedding that was actually canceled and they just hadn't read their email. Like college students sometimes don't read their emails. Teachers may appreciate that who are listening (laughs) and they didn't realize that the wedding had been canceled. And so the friend who the the bride or the ex bride um, is at the wedding location kind of mourning and in lieu of, you know, just going home or having a reception, they, visit her at her home and she tells them a story. So it's a story within a story, like a frame narrative, which I love. And, you know, that's like what the Princess Bride movie um, or a Titanic, those frame narrative stories. And then within the frame, the the ex-bride tells a story of a time she went and found this ocean that existed inside of Oklahoma um, that nobody knew about. And it's just, I don't know, it's such a weird story. And I've still never published it, I don't think. I kind of forgot about it. Um, but yeah, my friends who read that, I shared it with some some Cherokee friends. There's a a Cherokee drummer named Michaela Bearpaw, and she loved that story the most of, of all my writing. And we share a love of reading. And she was like, I swear, because she's Tahlequah is Cherokee country now. Um, I mean, of course, they're ancestrally from the East Coast, but Tahlequah's in the Cherokee Nation. And she's like, I swear that I have found an Oklahoma ocean before, too. It's out near Tahlequah. So we were just laughing. (laughs) Is that your most rule-breaking story? My most uh, what? Rule-breaking? Yeah. Rule-breaking. What is that? Earlier on, you talked about 
getting trained to be a very literary writer and trying to make decisions about if you could risk presenting yourself in the way you want to write and breaking rules. Um, and so I was wondering oh, if breaking. I'm sorry. what might be your most rule-breaking I one. thought you were saying role-breaking. Um, well, that too, right? Right, right. No, it is both. Yeah, what's my most rule-breaking story? Mm, it's got to be one where like the female narrator is just too unruly and I mean I know that a fresh start ruined and full tilt do follow the rules in terms of like show don't tell and whatever I like I, I might be starting to confuse myself about what are the rules because I just wanted like I think maybe a rule that I um could fixate on is one is you know you'll have teachers kind of say don't um write a car crash or don't have anything happen that's really alarming because then your characters will stop thinking if you put the characters in a traumatic situation but in um in the short story where they're in LA um it's not my kind of woman it's it used to be called fresh pizza goodbye pizza in Los Angeles but I think it got renamed um and it's the one where okay it's coming to me (laughs) it starts off like the spider webs wove their webs and the um the succulents drip dew out in the neighborhoods like it's that los angeles one and so i'll have to look at what the title is let me look at my uh little table of contents right here um what's a snake that's what it means and so in that one there is actually a traumatic event or sort of alarming event near the end of the story. And I think that I used that to reveal character and to, you know, like reach a new level, hopefully of insight into the characters. And so I felt like I was like super breaking rules in a what's ah. I want to be mindful of the time because I know you have a, a commitment you have to get to. Um, In the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? You know, like today people are going through this cultural change in terms of the normalized worldview in the country and kind of challenging this idea of Christian roots and Christian worldview. And it has this opportunity of inclusion for everybody, like more voices, more stories. And I think that's, of course, good and and fine. But what I'm more interested in kind of supporting and opening up long term is this idea for everyone, you know, that people descend from land and from places. And like I wanted in my stories, sometimes like an example is um, in by Alcatraz, we have these different characters and they're from different backgrounds and the narrator is young and kind of green and a college student, but she is, I think, challenging people when she's asking her, her date, not date Darren, oh, like, where do you come from? And he's kind of like, England or oh I don't know like oh I I don't really know much about my family and 
I just want people to feel empowered to look at the plants on your ancestral land base uh, from which, you know, some some of your ancestors or most of them or whoever may come from, even if it's just a continent. I want people to feel empowered to look at the plants indigenous to that content, continent and to know, you know, that your ancestors there living in your body, that there is this uh, resource, um, like I talk about with Ka and Wakanta in the last story in the collection, The Light, where she grieves and processes certain things, and then her Ka, or kind of her energy in a way, her power, not like political power or monetary power, but energetic power, comes back to her. I just want people to be able to question, like, where do your own ancestors come from? And what are the ways that we've been conditioned to erase that? Just like Vera has to erase uh, that they could be, that they are Osage and that she can't get away from that. You know, like so many people have lost so much of their culture or their connection to where you may only know a certain continent that could be like your land kin, so to speak. But I just want people to really know that there are resources there for you in terms of the plants that grow on your ancestral continents and that you can pray with them and um, eat them and drink them and look at your dreams to try to look at some of the solutions to problems that we have today and creating equity in, um, in our contemporary cultures. I know that might be a little out of left field, but you know, with my work, I'm really, um, a bit like conniving and strategic and they talk about a sunk rhetoric like Flannery O'Connor talks about a rhetoric that has been deeply sunk is a good one but I don't know if my rhetoric is sunk or not but I'm working towards this idea um, with my work of of land protection and rematriation and that was why I had an ancestral land tour instead of just a regular book tour where we in each city we talk to people about native people who were just natives who lived there, not from that land ancestrally, but removed there. Okay, like, you know, what's your experience with your native land ancestrally or lack of experiences on your ancestral land, as well as how do you think of homelands today? And I guess I'd like everybody to, to think, give some thought to those questions. And even if you're not ready to think about it like so out loud that you would journal about it or have an exercise for students around it, you know, still to just be able to consider it as like a far off thought about, you know, what's the responsibility towards protecting land that I might hold as a descendant of some land originally, as well as what are the disinheritances of the power of connecting to that land and the plants and my connection to it? And what might I gain by considering um, that land and that place over time and as it pertains to future ancestors? Thank you so much for being here today, Chelsea T. Hicks, and sharing with us from a calm and normal heart. This is Academic Life, and I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join us again.